Hello and welcome back to Property Unlocked. I'm Scarlett Douglas. And I'm Stuart Douglas. Whether you're a first-time buyer, renovating your home, or just curious about the property scene, we've got you covered. Now we are here to give you the information you need to make informed decisions and take your property game to the next level. Today on Property Unlocked, we are joined by a property developer and investor who is based in South London. He's been in the industry for over 10 years and during that time, he's completed over 40 deals and racked up an impressive gross development value of 15 million pounds. That's very, insane. very impressive. Isn't it? Extremely impressive. And we actually had a little conversation about this. What exactly should we call you? But we've decided to go with Kazzy. We've gone with Kazzy. We've gone with the online. Yeah, the, the online. online. <laughs> you know who is Property by Kazzy. We've got him in the studio with us and we are so excited to speak to you. So thank you, first of all, so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Stuart, you know I could talk for days to Kazzy, so get involved. Do you know what? It's great to see another young black entrepreneur doing so well. Yes. So, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Um, like we said before, very, very impressive. Let's get to know more about Kazim mm -hmm. first, before okay. we get to Kazi. Yeah. So what are your earliest memories of home? Probably running around naked a lot. TMI is not that sort of show, But yeah, I think growing up, Mum and dad, sort of dad being first generation migrant, so sort of working super hard, probably not seeing as much of him. But sort of South London, trying to just enjoy myself as, as a kid, grad. <laughs> that's all we really remember. Don't what we? house did you live in? How many bedrooms? Do you have any siblings? Like Yeah, so I lived with my mum, dad, younger sister in a two bedroom flat growing up. I'm in Crystal Palace. Yeah, and funnily enough, still live just around the corner. Okay. Oh, do you? Is there anything particular about that flat that you just remember so well? So do you know what? It backed onto the railway and it had like this... None of these flats were supposed to have big gardens, but, you know, you have this like reclaimed land from the railway that <laughs> yeah. nobody used and they didn't use. And so we had this like massive like garden, even though it wasn't supposed to be. It was kind of like a little forest. But I remember definitely sort of growing up and having that outside space. That was cool. And it was a so nice you, you almost had your own secret garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a little doorway to Narnia. A little, little spot to go and hide away, exactly. <laughs> that. I love the fact that you had such a big garden, especially in London. We know yeah. properties to not really have much outside mm -hmm. space. So that must have been incredible as a child to just yeah. be able to run up and down and just live your best life naked yeah. potentially exactly that <laughs> so have you always been interested in property like what age did you get into it i wasn't necessarily always interested in property but i think i was always interested in business and always sort of understood property i think one of the things about property is an asset class is we all understand that we need a home and it's, it's tangible you can physically touch it so after like i did some business and made like my first sort of significant amount of money it was just somewhere that I understood I think I don't really love risk so <laughs> going into property is like right I can touch it I can see it it made sense for me mm. because didn't you start off with a bar or a shisha bar is that right yes yeah, so I started off with like a little pop-up shisha sort of just like we go and do events and things like that transition from there into doing some of like the biggest festivals like the best one I did was v-fest love yeah. that we were sort of making couple thousand pounds a day doing those sort of shisha events and then from there I said okay you know what let's get a fixed premises so I had like a shisha slash cocktail bar mm -hmm. for a while and that was sort of where the startup capital came from. So then what was the catalyst to 
get you from that into property? When I first got into shisha, it was because I had a genuine passion for it. But I think it was because of like the whole social side of, you know, doing shisha was something different. Went on a holiday and was like, this is great. Yeah. Like, I can talk to my friends and go out. Like, this is, it's not like the cinema, it's not like certain other things. So I said, okay, this is great. But I think after like a lot of things, sometimes when the passion dies, then your ability to excel in it can also die. And I mm -hmm. think sort of the late nights, the early mornings and stuff like that wasn't feeling it as much and I'd seen you know people doing property sort of had conversations with people that have made ridiculous amounts of money in property just started to kind of just delve in and just really try and understand what the market looked like. Mm. So what was the first property that you bought can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah so first property I bought was on Mayor Road in Sydenham and it was a one-bedroom flat it was a repossession so I bought it at the time I wasn't working didn't have like two years worth of accounts. So I remember sort of going to the broker and saying, look, I want to buy this. And he's like, you have to use a bridging loan. Like, That's a bit of a baptism of fire for your first ever <laughs> I was going to say, for your yeah. first one. But it was, it made sense. The numbers made sense. And my background sort of in economics, like that was always, I think, where I'd hark back to. When I was worried, when I was concerned, it was like, you know, let's take the emotion out of it. Mm -hmm. And what do the numbers say? And they sort of said that it made sense. I think I bought it for around between 210000 spent about 25000 on the refurb, that time sort of full refurb, but also got a license to alter agreement to move the kitchen. So take the kitchen out, put a bedroom there, and then make an open plan kitchen living room. Mm -hmm. Particularly like in London, we're operating in these spaces. That jump from one bed to two bed mm -hmm. is where the real value comes in. So I think ended up selling it for like 310000 something around that sort of... So it's even after stamp duty and after the costs of finance, still sort of walked away with a decent amount of money. And that was kind of like the proof of concept. That, yeah. Okay, this worked. And when you've done that, obviously you had your business plan. Did it follow your plan or did you surpass it? Or did, how was it in the end? Because then it was your first one. Touch with the numbers like went pretty well. At that point in time, I was sort of self-managing all of the individual trades. That was a learning curve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, trying, to, trying to CC in a builder on an email, like I, I dare someone to try that, yeah. you know. <laughs> That there were some things that I think I over-personalized the design. There was this, this thing that so I, I wanted to do like the best flat ever. So I actually in the bathroom, I remember seeing this when I was on holiday and I saw like, oh, they had like a mirror and behind the mirror there was a TV. TV yeah. So like, yeah. I did that in the bathroom and it was all connected to the sky. And, and the agent at the time said, yeah, we've got this one buyer, they really like it. But they just think that the TV in the mirror is such a waste. So I was like, well, they don't have to watch it. Like, no, they just think it's a waste. They said they're not going to offer because they don't like oh, it. And no. I mean, no way. That was one of the things that made me say, okay, you know what? Like, you've got to do a good design, but mm. don't over-personalize it. And that uh, is something, wait sorry. A minute, wait a minute, That's wait something a minute. I've learned from wait a minute. Let me say this. I was going to say I don't want to expose my sister. But, I'm <laughs> but going he's going to expose me I'm anyway. I'm going to expose my sister. So when we first started doing this, I'd been doing it for a number of years mm -hmm. before. And Scarlett got involved and we had this problem regularly <laughs> where we'd go into a property and then she'd want to make it her own. Yeah. And I'd say, whoa, Scarlett, this isn't for you. Like yeah. wanting to get like stiletto chairs. There was this and... black leather heel chair. This is going to come up so much on this podcast. But I loved this chair and I thought this is the statement piece. You always need a focal point in a room. And that mm. was it for me. And I remember Stuart and I had an argument and then another argument. I'm like, we're going to get the chair. We're not getting the chair. And to be fair, I say it now. I hold my hands up. Stuart was right. Mm -hmm. You can't put too much of your own personal flair and touch into something. And I do have quite an out there mm. sense of taste and style, I think. That is very true. You have to not personalise it. But at the same time, 
with the market moving into where, you know, if you saw the standard of finish 10 years ago that you could get away with mm. compared to now, it's completely changed. Yes. Like you're, you know, the big home builders, they're finishing to a way higher standard. So for us to compete with them, I think the personal touches and actually thinking it through and making it practical and also having a kind of a flowing design throughout mm-hmm. the property is really important. And some things that where I think we've gone out on the edge a little bit, and it's worked and we sort of smash ceiling prices. But I think there's, there's that happy balance. I totally agree. When we were doing this, and when we've been developing, we always try to do something slightly different. Mm. There has to be some USP with your property. Mm. You have to, because you need to stand out from the others. Mm. And what I think's happened now is that the Magnolia walls and- Grey carpets. Yeah, the developers yeah. that have been very safe, they're now realizing, like you say, they have to change. Mm-hmm. So they're now trying to catch up. So it's down to us to make sure that we stay two, three, four, five steps ahead. Does that mean we can bring back the high heel chair? No, it doesn't. No, would you have it in your renovation? I mean, I'd need to see the rest of the movie. (laughs) 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 Very diplomatic, Hazzy, very diplomatic. So how old were you when you actually first started? 23. And you knew straight away that the first property you were going to buy was for business, not for your own personal use. I think I'd seen at the time, and it it wasn't really the podcast era, but it's still conversations about you know, how efficient your own use of capital is. And particularly bearing in mind that I didn't have the job, would have had to put in a larger deposit. If I would have taken that money, it would have been great to like have, okay, I live in my own home. Mm. But I think sometimes with that, particularly as like, you know, there's that sort of British adage of like an Englishman's home is his castle. Mm. And we kind of live and die by that. But sometimes it doesn't really matter if you don't own where you live, as long as you're using your money effectively and you can use it more efficiently elsewhere sometimes. Yeah, I think you have to definitely speculate to accumulate. And if you're confident in your own ability Mm. as a developer, you know that you'll make the money work Mm -hmm. in comparison to it sitting in a house and you paying the mortgage. So part of being a developer and a successful developer is to be brave and take risks. You took a risk on the first property that you bought. You did well on that. Mm -hmm. Where did you go from there? I think it was a case of rinse and repeat. A lot of the time, like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you find something that works, there's a lot more houses on that road. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more roads like that within that postcode and there's a lot more postcodes within that area. And I think that's why like sort of the more, even when I did it and I talk about it and now talk about it like when we talk on the socials, it's because I know that me saying, oh, this is how I did it. There's so many properties out there. It's not going to mean that people are going to buy up all the properties that I want to buy. What's more likely going to happen is somebody that maybe doesn't have the money is going to say, I found a deal that sounds like it's just up your street and they're going to bring it to me. I'm going to pay them a fee and we're going to work together. So basically from there, just started doing the same thing, repeating the process. The great thing about property is particularly from when I first started operating, you know, up until pretty much now, depends on when this comes out. I sort of, it might not age that well, but property has <laughs> obviously been going up. Mm. So some of the deals that I did where I thought, you know what, this is going to maybe sell for 350K and it ended up selling for like 460. So they were the ones where you're like, okay, you know what, we've really done some good business here. I think it was just a case of really being active. One thing that I learned early on was, you know, some of the deals that maybe haven't got all of the money in the world in them, but by doing them and staying active, you create your own luck by being busy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what kind of happened over the next few years. So without giving away all of your secrets, <laughs> what tips would you give any aspiring property developer? Firstly, specialization. So if, for example, somebody's sort of asking me, oh, what should I get into? I want to do this, that, the third. You know, it's really hard to learn everything at once. So find a niche, focus on it and make that work for you. 
And then once that does, then you can sort of then go and branch into other areas. But yeah, definitely specialised to start with. It sounds very cliche, but like obviously in terms of networking, speak to people that are doing the same thing you're doing, people that have done what you're doing and people that, you know, are behind you because they're the people that you're going to be able to work alongside mm -hmm. and you kind of grow together collectively. And we always say that, don't we? I think it's so important to find a mentor, find someone that's done it, made the mistakes that you don't have to make the same mistakes because there's a lot of money in property and you don't want to be making something that's going to be so costly to you. So that's super important to make sure you speak to people that have been there and done it. But there was something that you mentioned earlier. I just want to go back a little bit. You said about having your own capital in a property. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we always kind of discuss, I think, in the property world. Would you rather have your own money in property or mm -hmm. would you rather have, whether it's money that you've loaned a bridging loan or mm -hmm. a mortgage or somebody else's money, how mm -hmm. would you prefer to invest? Because a lot of people want to have their own house so that they can put all their money in it and then they own the property there's yeah. no mortgage like so to answer that question everything is risk and reward like you have to base that answer on your attitude towards risk so if you really really are like somebody who hates risk then you owning your property outright is going to be super safe but you need to consider that let's say for example you own one property outright that's worth a hundred thousand pounds that property price has been going up and they say you know property prices sort of double every kind of 10 years, 15 years, etc. If that doubles over the next 10 years, then you've made a hundred thousand pounds on mm -hmm. that property. But if you, for example, had a buy to let portfolio of four properties of a 25% deposit in each of them. So you then had a portfolio worth 400,000 rather than making a hundred thousand, you've made 400,000. You've also had the income collectively across the board from those properties. But the risk element is you expose yourself to market forces. I like recently we've seen changes in interest rates, mm -hmm. affordability changes in legislation when it comes to buy to let properties and ownership. So I think you really have to look at a strategy that works for you and it doesn't mean you have to gear super highly to up to 75 percent you could say that you know what based on your attitude towards risk maybe a 50 60 percent gearing where properties still sack up to seven eight nine percent interest rates mm -hmm. and it still makes sense for you and it's still safe I love this. No, I'm, I, I, I'm like, I want some tips for myself now. Actually, I, I'm going to sell my house. <laughs> I'm going to rent. Yes, and you're going to buy how many off the back of that? Plenty. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, Dad. No, it, you, I, I totally agree. I think mm. that you need to understand risk, and I always tell people that don't get sucked in by the glossy magazines or the television programs. Mm -hmm. When you're doing this, you can also lose money, and there will always be unforeseen that you need to deal with, and that is the norm. Yeah. That is the norm. So as long as you go into it and you understand that these risks, they're called risks for a reason. Mm. But like you said, if you can crunch the numbers and everything adds up and you do a job with good tradesmen, yep. a great workforce, you have a very high chance of success. Yeah. And we've been very lucky in that. We have had a couple of mishaps. We had a builder that actually moved into one of our properties and we were doing a renovation. And you're just thinking he's literally moved in with his girlfriend with a blow up bed and they're fully in the property. So we have had to deal with certain things, but we've learned along the way who's going to work for us, who isn't. And you do build a team. So how easy or difficult has it been for you to build your team that you work with now? And do you allow new people into the bubble? Yeah, I think, you know, that kind of old adage of no new friends stay the same forever is, is nonsense because like we, we don't work this hard to stay the same like you're constantly leveling up so when I look back at some of the tilers that I was using 10 years ago with their dob and dab method and I didn't really know any better I'm looking at that and like I'm cringing and I'm closing my eyes oh. so obviously it's like the standard of finish and what you want to deliver I think there's always space for somebody who can force themselves into your team because they're better than the current standard that you have mm -hmm. 
the other side of it is now that, you know, we've off the back of Brexit, the labor force has shrunk, unfortunately, particularly in the construction space. So people, and that's happened, material costs have skyrocketed. So even in terms of some of the external contractors that I've worked with for years, and I'm saying, look, I want to do a single story rear extension, the loft conversion. And, you know, typically just for argument's sake, it was a hundred thousand pounds. And look, you know, I know it's a hundred thousand pounds before I know that I can do it for that. But because demand is so high right now, mm -hmm. I can do Joe's job down the road and get paid 150. So it's a case of moving with the times. Yeah. But I think, you know, in terms of finding a build team, personal recommendations go a long way outside the personal recommendations, go and do the legwork, go and see projects they've worked on, are currently working on, speak to their old clients, make sure that you take the time to either prepare or have your contract so your schedule of works prepared yourself and you actually understand your schedule of works mm -hmm. i think a lot of people just rely on externals are oh, the architect have looked at it, the builders have looked at it but understand it yourself because when the disputes come up you're going to have to read it then so you might as well read it yeah. at the beginning and lastly the real basic one just company house check people so actually check their financials and check that you're not actually going to be funding the rest of their company off the deposit that you pay them mm, that's a really good one actually i didn't even think of that last one yes it's very very important i have a number of builders that i've always worked with because i trust them and i think trust is very important mm -hmm. and for somebody to like you say scarlet come into your bubble, I need to be able to trust you. Mm -hmm. But not only trust you, I need to know that your workmanship and your standard of work and finish is of a level that I expect. Yeah, It may not be of the level of the previous job that you've done, but mm -hmm. I have certain standards mm -hmm. that you have to adhere to. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that when you're doing developing, that you have to have a workforce to understand that. And they know that at times you're going to ask some difficult questions that need to be answered, but they're able to do that. And yeah, for, for me, like what you were saying, I love property, but there are times where you can't be Mr. Nice Guy. Mm -hmm. like, things need to be done. I always say to people when they ask me questions, remember that you're the client. You've employed these to work for you. Mm -hmm. It's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that's something that people must remember. Yeah, I think that's super important. And as well, as a black female in the industry, you do get kind of looked down on quite a lot. And that is something that you've taught me from the beginning, Stuart, is remember that they are working for you, the builders. A recent renovation I did, there were so many things that just weren't right and I was too nice to start off with because it's the first one I'd done on my own. And the minute I thought, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen here. I'm paying you. This is the standard that I want. So either do it or get out. And the minute I did that, I remember seeing their faces and they were like, oh, okay, we need to really up our game here. Yeah. But you have to be firm and you have to be strong. And even on Worst House on the Street, our show, there was a girl on it called Sana, a lovely lady, and she sacked her builders twice. After we said to her, you need to make sure you are ruthless because this is your house. It has to be as you want it. She got rid of one set of builders, then she got rid of another set. And she was like, thank you so much for that because I kind of felt like I couldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. But you have to. It's a property and it's got your name on the back of it. So it's important that the standards are high and they're kept. Yeah. yeah speaking of standards and speaking of developments, we've been fortunate enough to start developing before when interest rates were relatively low. Mm -hmm. um, each time inflation increased, interest rates didn't. Mm -hmm. So we're now at a period where interest rates are rising. And yeah. I think that we've had it quite good for a while. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now that interest rates are rising, what advice would you give to A, aspiring developers mm -hmm. and B, first-time buyers? I think with interest rates rising, so we'll start on first-time buyers, 
you know, particularly it's going to be your home, but in terms of affordability, you, we, you can't just rely now on, okay, house prices are going to go up, interest rates are going to remain low, which is what people have been doing for a long time. Mm. And I really feel for people that bought sort of during the first stamp duty holiday 2020 that were fixed on sort of one and a half to 2% rates that have now gone to four and a half to 6%. Mm. I think realistically, when you're doing your affordability, you've got to really make sure that does it actually stack on that six or seven percent? And, you know, if you know what your income is going to be, obviously, these are all long term purchases. So potentially look into tie in for five years if you know that you can afford it for this amount of time. I've seen some people that are saying, you know what, because I don't like risk, because I like to manage like my money more efficiently. They're trying to tie in not as many of them around, but there were before like 10 year deals mm. and people that are just locking in and saying, okay, really understanding your bottom lines and is it affordable for me? Because when you read the paperwork on your mortgage and it says your mortgage could go up to this amount. Like, it's not a joke. When it says, if you don't make payments, your house could be repossessed. It's all not a joke. And I don't say that to be doom and gloom, but you're signing in to a serious contract. Mm. So is it affordable now for you and based on how you think your circumstances are going to be for the duration of your mortgage term? For aspiring developers, I think for me, I'm talking about exit a lot. How are you going to exit this? So when we talk about development, we talk about buying something, adding value, and then either selling or switching onto a long-term product like a buy-to-let mortgage. Now, the reality is that if you look at the amount of money you could borrow for every £1,000 worth of rent, in a limited company in June sort of 2022, based on rates of about three to three and a half percent, you could borrow just shy of 300,000 for every 100,000 pounds worth of rent. If you take that, look at rates right now, you can borrow about 160,000. So what that means is, whereas typically everybody will say, I'm going to exit on a 75% loan to value and get this amount of my money out after the uplift, that's no longer viable. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at a deal, if your plan is to exit by refinancing, you've got to make sure that you stress test that against what the rental affordability is based on six, 7% interest rates and how much money you can then borrow to get out of that deal. If you're planning on selling, so flipping the property, you've got to think that, okay, so help to buyers come to to an end mm -hmm. they're saying potentially like particularly the new build flats like brand new flats typically attracted the highest premium are what get hit first and hardest during times yeah. of sort of economic difficulty so depending on what you're selling what's the market going to be like to exit those and i think the reality is in a difficult market you have to stress test a lot more but you know, to take away from some of the doom and gloom, like the best lesson that I ever learned in property, and I think probably every person will probably always speak about is you make your money when you buy. So in terms of for developers now, you have to be a lot more, you know, cutthroat with the offers that you're putting in the first place to make sure that with, you know, a more difficult market, the deal still stacks. Mm. And with changing circumstances, it still stacks. So I think just be a little bit more attention to deal to mm. deal with what you're offering day one and you know how you plan to exit. So how do you find your properties? Generally speaking, you know, I think sort of growing up South London, a lot of sort of friends, you know, family have worked in estate agencies over time, have built good relationships through like integrity and through making sure that, you know, a handshake means the deal's done so that people know they can come to me. And if they've got, you know, somebody that needs to get rid of a property quickly and I say, I'm going to buy it, they know that that's going to happen. So I think building relationships with local agents and my buyer auction, now that I've built up like the property by Kazi platform as well, I get a lot of people that come to me and say, look, I've got this property or would you be interested? I don't work with sources that much. I'm more than happy to work with them, but I think a lot of them, you know, needs their skills home in a little bit. 
I don't have one direct kind of strategy. I don't particularly use direct to vendor that much, if I'm honest with you. It's mm -hmm. something I want to start using more. I will sort of drop the odd letter around if I see somewhere that I really like, but I don't do sort of large scale direct to vendor, you know, letter campaigns with like maps, insights and things like mm -hmm. that. So if somebody wanted to get on to mm -hmm. the property market and they wanted to get into development, as Stuart said, but they have no money at all. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that there's certain things as JVs, you can mm -hmm. do a joint venture. Is that something that you do? And is that something that you would suggest that someone should do if they wanted to get into the market? There's nothing wrong with joint venturing. Great way to obviously do business for yourself and for somebody of money. But you've got to look at what are you bringing to the table? Because for doing a joint venture with somebody, generally speaking, there has to be value added for both parties. So if, for example say as somebody wants to get into property, say you've got the deal. Once you've got the deal, you're 80% net. Like the hardest part yeah. is getting to the point where you need that money to do the deal. So once you've got that deal, if you go to a room, you go to any of these networking events, like I've got a really great deal, I need money, you're going to find somebody to JV with you. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you've got money, other people will come and find you with a deal. Now, if you don't have those two key things, you may still have the expertise. So you may have the ability to go out there and say, look, I'm going to go through you know, going to be able to go and find a deal. I've got the time, maybe I've got skills as a tradesman, but it's all really about looking at what you have to offer somebody. Mm. Like one of the guys um, who interned with me, he was just great when it came to my social media. So that was his inroad. He said, look, like, Kazi, I can tell some of your posts, they're not, they're not, they're not popping. Like, you know, <laughs> you're, you're getting, you know what I mean? You're not Gen Z. I can tell that you're not Gen Z. I can tell you've used dial-up before. Like, they, they, they weren't bringing up in the way they should be. But that was something that they made themselves useful to me. Yeah. And I think for a JV, that is very possible. All of this, like, oh, no money down, you can do it. Like, I'm not a massive believer in it. Mm. I think everything takes hard work. And some of the boys that I've seen, young boys, like guys, Ethan, Aaron, like, they're, like, 23. And they, they did deals with no money. But what they did do is... Is they started in rent to rent and started in deal sourcing mm. and built up, you know, their credibility with people that people are saying, okay, these boys actually can make money. They then built up their social media platform, spoke to people, like actually became their own brand to the point where they are investable. So I don't think it can happen day one, but yes, I think you can get into property without money over time, but it does take a lot of hard work. So what would you say that someone should do then if they did want to get into it? They've got no idea, starting from scratch, what would your advice be? Dive into the, like, so when I say dive in, go for yourself in, whether it's podcasts like this, different type of podcasts, there's so much free information out there mm. in this, like, whether it's your clubhouse, your YouTube, your Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, there's so many things. Actually work out what area of property you like. Once you've kind of done all of the hard work and you've got a few questions, that may be a point in time where you're like, okay, maybe I'm now going to maybe pay for somebody to answer those questions, whether that be for education or mentoring, but pay for somebody very specifically to I know now what I don't know. And that's a great place to be in. And then ask those questions, because I think you touched on earlier that you can make really expensive mistakes in yep. property. So I think, you know, sometimes a little bit of money now to save, you know, large expenses in the long term. Great. Alongside that, things that I think, you know, we just need to make sure we talk about, which is like protect your credit score. Mm -hmm. Protect your credit score above all else, because that is what is going to enable you to leverage and do a lot more in property a lot sooner. And also the better your credit score, the lower risk you are. The lower risk you are, the cheaper rate of interest you pay. Cheaper rate of interest you pay, the more competitive you are when it comes from offering because your cost of finances are lower. I think, yeah, they're sort of good starting points. And we all make mistakes. We're human and you learn from your mistakes. We've had the 
privilege of being involved in this industry for a long time. Mm. Mm-hmm. But for people who haven't taken this step onto this journey, mm-hmm. what mistakes would you say they must avoid? A lot of the mistakes come from you know people's understanding of certain things. So whether that's um, understanding of what exactly restrictions are within a lease, for example, or what, you know, the reduced cost of a short lease is or the cost of a lease extension, or for example, the cost of something being a listed building. But I think a lot of these things, again, come back to a lack of understanding. So I think you touched on it when we spoke about the builders, but I think really asking questions and not being afraid to not know stuff and ask out, you know, kind of ask, okay, why is this the case? So when somebody tells you, oh, I'm looking at this and you see in the title, it's a grade two listed building. If you don't know what that is, why have you not asked anybody? Yeah. Like if you see that, oh, it's got a short lease, as cash buyers only. What does that mean to you and how does that affect your circumstances? So I think potentially the fear of actually saying, you know, admitting I don't know everything, Mm -hmm. let me find out big mistakes you know I think using the wrong builders relying on the wrong people sometimes just listening to the very basic information in in forums well yeah you can just do this and do that and do whatever and it'll be fine so I think sort of not covering yourself when it comes to investing can be quite dangerous property isn't all about smooth sailing Mm -hmm. and making profit it's difficult Mm -hmm. and there is risk Mm -hmm. when you had those times where it was tough how do you deal with the stress? Because it's stressful. Mm. Now more than ever, it's super stressful. Rates are going up. And there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, I've had things that have happened, like sort of funding pulled last minute, all sorts like, you know, investors, you know, sort of flake. And I think it's hard to deal with. But I think for me, like you have to compartmentalize sometimes and you have to work on day-to-day achievable tasks. Like if you're trying to run a race, you've just got to think about your next step and your next step and your next step. And then before you know it, like you'll look back and not realize how far you've gone. And I think you've just got to take that same attitude towards business. Of course, you know that you want to reach the end goal, but it's each individual step that's going to get you there. And I think so just being able to, at the end of the day, look in the mirror and say, right, I've achieved something today. I've ticked something off. I think that's how I deal with stress. But do you think that's a personality trait that you have? Because you're very calm mm. and collected and thoughtful mm. i always say that when there's a hurricane in your mm. mind when things are 100 miles an hour it's the person that can maintain a calm presence yeah. that often comes out the other side how do you maintain that calm presence because you're a very calm yeah. guy yeah i'm naturally like calm like people don't really see me shouting or whatever but that is like fortunately it's a natural character trait but at the same time everything has its at the other side so the other side of it is sometimes i could be too laid back right. and i think it's really understanding you and understanding your personal strengths and weaknesses and doing that personal SWOT analysis because you could be too calm to the point that there's the thunderstorm and all you're doing is burying your head in the sand when you need to take action mm. so i think just really understanding yourself and it's like you know some of these key business principles of that sort of SWOT analysis of strength weaknesses opportunities and threats if when things are going wrong, you take that and you run that exercise on your business, on yourself, you'll see where you can take action. You might not be able to solve everything today, but again, those little steps that take you towards solving problems because nothing's going to solve itself. Like if you just sit there and hope, mm. it's like treading water. If you're in the middle of a swimming pool and you're treading water with no direction, eventually you're going to get tired and drown. Whereas if you go somewhere, it may not be where you want to get to. Mm. You're going to get to a point where you go to the edge of the pool, like, right, this isn't the exit. Let me take a second, relax, sort of recompose and then go again. So I think it's actually just taking that action. I think as well in the market currently, it's daunting for 
experienced developers, but also for people that have no idea and really want to get involved in it. They don't know where to start. Interest rates are all over the place. People don't really know what it means. It's a really difficult place out there now, I think, for people to get into property. But it doesn't mean that it's not possible. It doesn't mean it's not possible. And during like economic turmoil, during recessions, there's the biggest transfer of wealth. So those that are ready to take action or, you know, do take action is where, you know, where the money's effectively going to be made. Like when we look at recessions historically, the most amount of new millionaires are made during recessions. So yeah, it's scary. Yeah, there's a lot of things and there's a lot of reasons why potentially things could go wrong. But your job as an entrepreneur isn't to find out why things won't work, it's to find solutions to make them work. And if you really are an entrepreneur, and I think that's the great thing about Gen Z, there's so many entrepreneurs and so many people out there that are making it happen as teenagers that you'll take whatever you did to make it work in the TikTok space or your business space or your dropshipping space. And you can take that same business ethos to make it work in property because property is just the product that we're buying and selling. And if you're good at business, you can make it work regardless of the market conditions. We've all had a best and worst. So we've had a best and worst investment. So we're going to play a quick game. <laughs> best, best and worst. Okay. So the best and worst property that you bought and why? I'll do one sort of numbers where I ask everyone lots of numbers. So <laughs> This one that I bought for 205,000, um, did a loft conversion, and it was like on a high street at the time, you know, I said, I, think I touched on earlier, I said, I think for maximum it's gonna be worth sort of 350. Did it, but did like spent extra money. So went above and beyond. So maybe did a little bit. You basically created a little <laughs> muse in the rear entrance, did some block paving, did a road sign, did, you know, the lighting. So it made like what was a rear entrance really attractive, went for the exposed brick. Mm. I think I had a woman's face somewhere in the shower. So <laughs> did, did a lot where it was like, oh, is this too much? Mm. Um, but yeah, bought that for 200 and sort of 5,000 sold it, smashed the ceiling price. I think I had it on for 400, sort of got 14 offers, went best and final, sold for 460 wow. in nine months, over a hundred percent return on investment within that nine month period. And that was, yeah, sort of a big catalyst to be like, okay, we can go and do some bigger deals now. And what were your renovation costs on that? 70,000, I think. That's a great 70, return 70, on investment. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. That was a great, you know, let's like say 100 to sort of, I think I'm sort of low boy. I can't remember exactly, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was, I was smiling. I was yeah. like, even, I'll be honest, like when it went sort of, say, well, oh, we're going to put it on for 400. I was like, are you sure? Mm. And when they said our oh, first day of viewings, like 14 offers, I said, yeah, well, yeah, you should. Um, I, 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 I was like, just dumped down all of them. You know, just I'm, I'm, <laughs> I get I've got a talent in this. Yeah. <laughs> so you've gone from smiling at the 460 yeah. to mm. crying at the worst, which was? <sighs> so my stupid friend, like I was again talking, I was on holiday. <laughs> bearing in mind, I just did that deal. Next door, identical property came up at auction. I told my friend, look, you know what? Like market wasn't as good, but I said, look, you know what? We can go up to like, 3.30 on this like I've given him my passport the check everything because I'm like I'm not in the country I can't make the auction mm. good friend of mine I'm not going to name him but you know you are we know you know you are that was Alex <laughs> <laughs> name and shame <laughs> but I've told us he said he said All right, no problem he's going to go there for me he wants to go to the auctions anyway so go up to 3.30 amazing now I've checked like, I can't get hold of him but I've checked the auction and I've seen it I've seen oh, I sold for 240 I'm thinking amazing another deal he's missed the auction no he didn't he, got, he didn't go he, no he's got stuck like there was some tube strike he's no. him he's always late you're always late <laughs> <laughs> he's always late and um, he's missed the auction so you're like joking. he literally we would have paid like 80,000 more than what he sold for 
we've literally just done somewhere identical next door. <sighs> oh no, no everything. But oh. it's, do you know what it is? It's, it's one of those ones where it's sometimes it's you know whatever. For me, I've got this mindset that whatever's meant for you is meant yeah, for you. Yeah, we're it's, the it's, same. But the, that hurts. the people who bought it, like they did have a load of issues with the freeholder, and they didn't do the works for about a year. Yeah. But there was a lot of money. So in best it. than worst. <laughs> We've spoke about statement pieces. Mm. Yes. Best and worst statement piece you've bought. <laughs> Do you know what, in terms of staging and stuff? Staging, the best and the worst. Yeah. So. I mean, I, the I woman's my... face in the shower sounds a bit out there. Do you know what? It works. I'm going to send you an okay. image. I'm going to find an image. Maybe, <laughs> We're going to put we, this up. We can okay, do some so edits and it. we can have a little judge. I didn't mind it. The weird thing was that it really ended up looking like the estate agent who was selling it. <gasps> so <laughs> people, when they were doing the view, was like, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> but yeah, um, there was a period where I, I think I decided that, you know, I, I liked fish a lot. And a few places I put like the fish tank in the wall. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So like, I think I really liked that. I did that in this course, sort of artsy style studio conversion where it was open plan. Mm -hmm. And between like the open plan, like between the bedroom and the living room was a fish tank in the walls. So I think that was my favourite piece that I did and it worked really well. And the worst? TV got the worst no. response. The TV, like people Think. really hated that TV. Oh, I don't Why would you hate that? I think, do you know what it was? It was the balance of the flat, being that it was like ex-housing association and oh, it didn't okay. really it didn't gel. It wasn't, I was, you know, I was in Sydney, which now Sydney's lovely. Yeah. At the time, Sydney wasn't as lovely. And I was trying to do Notting Hill in, you know, in, in the <laughs> wrong area. So I think... I wonder if it's still in that property. Um, I'm sure it's still there. It'd be nice, though. Yeah. So. One last best and worst. Mm -hmm. Best and worst advice that you've been given and taken. Ooh. So best best advice still got to be you make your money when you buy. I go back to that every time. Property can be super forgiving on that other investment sometimes, but if you buy right, it gives you so many opportunities to make mistakes. Mm. Oh, you mess up on the builders. Ah, well, there's enough money in it. Yeah. Oh, you went on the wrong rate. Mm, there's enough money and it took too long. There's still enough money in it because you bought right. So I think making that right decision first, right at the beginning, yeah, is, is probably the most valuable, good piece of advice I've been given. You would have been given a lot of bad advice, I know, and not taken it. But what <laughs> bad advice have you been given, taken and thought, Oh, my oh word. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was just actual advice of, like, you know, what, like I said, even touching on, like, you know, the tiling. Of like, oh, that's a good way to tile. Like, the dob and dab tiling. <laughs> that I genuinely, I'm just starting out. I don't know anything about tiling. The point, I wasn't really researching in that much detail. I'm seeing these who I am saying, like, in terms of finish, it looks great. So I'm looking at them like, these are master tradesmen. Because I could never tile. And I can't <laughs> fit this kitchen. But in hindsight, like, this job from 10 years ago, one of them that I ended up keeping, I looked at some of the electrics and like, you know, some of the electrical tape that was used in questionable places. Yeah. Right, yeah. I think, so I would say getting non-specialists to do specialist roles and trying to save all money just because it's an early project and because you don't have the budget, potentially like look to save in other areas. So yeah. save maybe on the finish and don't save on your first fixed stuff. The yeah. Number one, mm -hmm. health and safety, mm -hmm. like, paramount. But number two also, like particularly for long-term, property is going to hold for a long-term. It's going to cost you more money. Yeah.
Listen, it's been brilliant speaking with you. Thank you so much. You've been fantastic on the show. So insightful, inspirational, educational, all of those good things. And yeah, we want to make sure we can follow you. So let everybody know your handles and your social medias, all of that. Yeah, so it's uh, Property by Kazi, K-A-Z-Y, all one word on Instagram, on YouTube. They're my main places, but you can also uh, Kazim Ali Balogan on LinkedIn as well. Wicked, wicked. I would normally say good luck and thank you for coming, but I'm not going to say good luck because I think the harder you work, the luckier you get. Mm -hmm. And you work extremely hard. So luck is on your side, for sure. But keep representing. Thank you. Keep doing your thing. As Scarlett said, you're an inspiring young man. Yeah, and we're all very proud of you. So thank you you very much for coming. Thank Thank you. Thank you, thank you. It was great chatting with Kazi. Now, mm. I really like his approach to investing. Yeah. Particularly the balance between risk and reward. Yes, which is something that I don't think many people talk enough about. Yeah. So I'm happy that he did. I'm very happy that he explained how property owners can enhance their property's appeal to potential buyers and market trends. Which is very important. Very important. So big shout out to Kazi for joining us today. Thank you. And next week, we are joined by a good friend of mine, and a property expert, Mm -hmm. Dave Ramadin. Oh, the guru, the property guru. The property guru. (laughs) See you later, Stuart. See you later, Scarlett.